This week's episode of Acts 29 podcast is a recording from our most recent advanced conference in Raleigh, North Carolina. So enjoy this session and we'll hope to see you at the next advanced conference as well. Uh, I, I want to give you a little bit of uh, just very, very quickly some of my story because um, I, I come at this issue of Christian leadership from, from you know, the only perspective that I can, the mind, right? And so my experience has not been your experience, um, but I want you to, to have a sense of where I come at this from. So uh, I have, I'm a West Coast guy. Okay, so uh, I, I haven't spent a lot of time in the Southeast. Don't don't judge me too hard for that. Uh, but I have lived in every major West Coast city. Okay, born in Portland, family moved to Phoenix, college in San Diego, back to Phoenix, San Francisco, Seattle, now LA. Uh, I planted three churches. Planted a church in Tempe, Arizona, home of the Arizona State University Sun Devils, and. Um, uh, uh, and then after leading that church for eight years, uh, moved to San Francisco and planted a church from scratch in the middle uh, of San Francisco. We were there for about four and a half years, uh, moved to Seattle. Uh, and after serving at another church for a while, planted uh, a church in the middle of uh, Seattle. In fact, if you remember during COVID, there was that autonomous zone where all the hippies uh, decided it was their time. And uh, it was fine because no one else was out. So we're like, yeah, I mean, have it, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> our church was inside the autonomous zone. Uh, and so uh, now, as Brian said, I'm in Los Angeles. And uh, the church I serve at is in Burbank, uh, California. We're, uh, like, like he said, just across the Hollywood Hills. And, uh, and actually doing, doing stand-up has been uh, a really interesting uh, uh, kind of experience for me, giving me some unique perspective. So uh, just a few weeks ago, I was uh, on a show. It was actually a, a, a competition that I was in. And uh, this is great. It mixes two of my favorite things, comedy and, and beating people. And so um, I was on this competition and the, uh, the other people in the competition were, uh, it, it was uh, a lesbian, uh, two bisexuals, a trans person, a gay guy, a, uh, a, a woman who was a scientist who talked about how God is gay, and uh, another guy who talked about how God was a woman for various reasons that are entirely inappropriate. And, uh, and I, so I was the only, you know, I was the only straight white guy. I was the only Christian. I was the only married person. I was the only one with kids. I was, you know, certainly a freak in every possible way. And, and this is, uh, you know, a, a kind of the crowd votes on the winner and the whole deal. So it's a, just a very unique, uh, dynamic situation. And this is not atypical. Right, so I am often in these rooms with these kinds of folks in LA, and I and I admit that you know Seattle and San Francisco and LA are are probably a bit more progressive than some of the places y'all are from, but I can tell you it's where y'all's towns are going. Jesse, I said y'all. That's contextualization. Okay, <laughs> we've been talking about that. That's contextualization. So um, I have seen, in some ways, I have seen the future by being in those rooms. And I'll tell you this, you know what those people think of you, how they think of you? They don't, by and large. Like you're just not on the radar for them. You know, when, you're, when you accidentally, against their will, kind of cross into their lives, sure, they'll dislike you. But in general, they're not thinking about you. 
Christianity and faith and the church is just not even on the radar. When I, you know, all the things we do in comedy in, in LA is done through Instagram. And my Instagram title is not Pastor Justin. And that's not like me. I'm not a pastor anymore guy. That's always been my handle. And, uh, but so people know pretty quickly, like I'm a pastor or at least was recently, right? And so they asked me that question. Are you a pastor? Yeah. What kind? Christian. What, what does that mean? Like what are you crazy or like what, you know, there's just no categories for it. And so my, my point in saying all that is uh, I am seeing the outer reaches of progressive culture. And even if the places you are ministering today aren't there yet, I am convinced they are, you are on that trajectory. And it may never get as crazy. Like, we'll probably always stay ahead of you. I think LA is trying to get crazier actively uh, and, and wants to be that. So you, you all may never get there, but I'm telling you the, the future of Christian leadership, in my opinion, is going to be meaningfully different than it has been in the past. Okay, What I see happening around us is culture changing so rapidly and so completely that it is exerting pressure on the church. And so this illustration I use all the time, if I started pushing down on this podium, now this one looks pretty sturdy, so it would take a lot of pressure. But if we started putting pressure on this podium, whatever is the weakest part of the podium would break first, right? But you don't know, like just looking at it, you might guess it's probably one of the spindly legs, but like you wouldn't know for sure until the pressure was being applied. And when I look around the church and culture and Christian leadership, I see pressure being applied by social media, by trends and movements, by language changes, all kinds of different factors that are applying pressure on the church and pressure on Christian leaders. And I see Christian leadership crumbling under that pressure. It seems like a daily occurrence that I hear about a friend or a colleague or just some pastor across the country that has crumbled under the pressure one way or another uh, that society is putting on the church. And so as I look out into the future, I see only more and more and more pressure being put on us. So what I want to do tonight is give us a vision for what the future of Christian leadership might look like. And I want to do so from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So if you can turn there. This is, uh, I, should, I should note, uh, this, some of this sounds familiar. This is an expanded version uh, of a talk that I gave very quickly as a TED Talk style at the National Conference uh, in the fall of last year. I'm going to expand on that uh, because it was 18 minutes and that's hardly a sermon. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Verses 13 and 14. Paul says to the church in something like a benediction, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. In this uh, short two verses, there are five imperative verbs. I checked with Tony, it's true. <laughs> Which imply ongoing action. This is the way that we've got to be. This is the way in which we've got to live and act and lead. 
And so in, in, in these five, I see two sets of verbs that exist in tension with one another, oriented around one big idea. And so what, what I want to do is I want to look at each of those verb tensions, those little couplets, and then finish with the, the central idea that is behind it. So we'll start with the first two, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. First, Paul calls us to have an outward orientation toward the world. We need to know what is happening around us so that we can navigate the world and the dangers that are ahead. We cannot put our heads down and pretend or hope that the world is not changing. We have to be watchful. We have to follow the trends and ideas, understand the value systems and changing ethics. We have to be students of the philosophies and ideas that are unfolding around us. And at the very same moment, stand firm in the faith. We have to be rooted in the gospel. It has to be our source of knowledge, discernment, answers, and solutions. And this is the tension of these first two verbs. On the one hand, we have to be watchful. We have to be actively educated about what's going on around us. We have to have our eyes open. And at the very same time, we can never lose our grip on the story, on the beauty, on the logic of the gospel. So the illustration that I want to use to help us uh, make sense of this is a basketball one. So I wore my basketball shoes or the shoes that look like somebody should be playing basketball in them. This, in basketball, once you pick up your dribble, you can't keep walking, right? That's called traveling. And so uh, you have to hold down one foot, and it's called your pivot foot, okay? So you can do this once you've stopped moving. It's so much harder with a mic. This was not in my plan. And so you, you can move like this, but you have to keep one foot Solid. So in, it, when, when you pick up your dribble in basketball and you want to make a pass or shoot the ball, you might use your pivot foot to give yourself a lane to be able to see your teammates to pass the ball to or to get around a defender to shoot, whatever it may be. But you cannot move your pivot foot. And so as we think about this idea of being rooted in the gospel and this never-changing truth and being watchful to what's happening around us in the world, this idea of having a pivot foot that never moves, but, but being able to move around and see what's happening and see the angles and be aware of the whole game, I think is apt for us. Some of us aren't moving at all. We've picked up our dribble and we're just gonna, we wanna take our ball and go home. We want nothing to change ever and we just wanna keep singing the same songs that we've been singing for 40 years. We wanna keep saying things the same way. We wanna keep our small groups the same or our Sunday school the same. We want nothing to change ever. We just wanna keep doing the same thing. And others are out there dragging their pivot foot further and further and further out, hoping to finally get a view that will allow them to be successful. So there are two temptations here. The first is the most obvious, right? It's liberalism. This is where we drag that pivot foot further and further out until we have lost that anchor altogether. And I think we're aware of this and it's real. It's happening to churches all around us. Now, I hope and I believe, I think that we in this room are particularly equipped because of our theological distinctions as a network. I think we are particularly equipped to resist the most overt forms of liberalism. So our temptation is more subtle and therefore more insidious. 
what I see sometimes is that there are, there are secular goals, goals that this world has, values that this world has, that seem to run parallel to the Gospels. And so we are tempted to use the Bible and the truth to validate these secular goals and secular ends, things along the lines of race and gender and sexuality, equity, justice, and other kinds of social issues. So part of standing firm in the gospel is making sure that we are pursuing the things that the scripture calls us to with the priority and intensity that scripture gives them. So there's a way for us to go, well, this is technically still a gospel issue, but the world has made it a huge issue, a central issue, the most important issue. And we go, yeah, it, it, and the Bible kind of agrees that it is a thing. And so we give it the kind of priority and intensity that the world gives it, not the priority and intensity that the Bible gives it. It's a subtle temptation. But the danger of wading out into culture without the anchor of the gospel is not just liberalism, and we see this happening all around us as well. We aren't just tempted to pursue secular ends using gospel means. We are also tempted to accomplish gospel ends using secular means. Did you catch that? Sometimes we are tempted to pursue gospel ends, transformation, uh, societal change, kingdom of God, but instead of using gospel means, we are tempted to use secular means, things like power and domination and legislation and manipulation. These are not gospel means. We all want to see the world changed, and that's good. We want to see the kingdom of God. The temptation that we have is to pull the levers of power that society offers us in order to accomplish that change. Seeking gospel ends using secular means is no better than seeking secular ends with gospel means. We have to fight for the goals that the scriptures give us using the weapons that the scriptures have given us. The weapons of prayer and preaching and discipleship and evangelism and the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's ends. So very practically then, what should we be watching for? I have five things. First, we should be watching for trends, not fads. Watch what's happening over months and years, not days and weeks. Watch for what's happening generationally and don't be moved by every new story in the New York Times or whatever your source of news may be. Second, watch for language, not words. Don't get hung up on words like trauma or harm and let them bother you as they sometimes bother me. Notice the therapeutic language that has come to dominate our culture. Why do people use therapeutic language more and more and more these days? Because they are hurting and lonely. People need love and community. People need connection. And, and the world has given them language to make sense of their longings, but it's not biblical language, it's not gospel language, it's therapeutic language. And that, and that just leads, those words aren't bad, they aren't even necessarily wrong, but they lead towards a different solution and source. So let's pay attention, not get hung up on the words, and listen for the language. Number three, watch for needs, not desires. 
Sometimes desire language obscures real needs. The language of need can be too vulnerable sometimes. To acknowledge that I'm a needy person, I need community, I need love, I need affirmation, I need something in my life is an incredibly difficult thing for people to say. To simply say, I want that, or more so, I deserve that, requires far less vulnerability. So when we hear people make demands or communicate their desires, try to ask yourself to look beneath that and go, what is the need being expressed here or not expressed, but present? Number four, look for influence, not power. Look for influence, not power. Influence moves culture. Power simply codifies it. You see this happen all the time where presidential candidates or uh, or presidents themselves will be kind of late to the game on a social movement because the cultural influence is actually what's moving that forward and the president only codifies what has already happened later. So by the time something often comes to the Supreme Court, it's a done deal. Like the the game is up at that point because the, the culture has moved so far that this, this final step is merely a formality. So we ask the question, not who has power, but who has influence? Who's moving things forward? Number five, look for illogic and inconsistency. And do so not to you know, own the liberals in your sermon, but to be able to peel back the nonsensical philosophies and ideologies in our world so that people can see clearly, like, hey, if you say, you know, if you start with A and try to move to B and C, it just doesn't make sense. Like, you can't get to universal human rights from an atheistic starting point. You can't get there. You can't make a coherent argument against racism, sexism, or bigotry of any kind if you don't start with some sort of objective, rational truth. So we can unveil that, do the work of apocalypse, right? To peel back what seems to be true to unveil what is beneath it. So we look for illogic and inconsistency in the philosophies of this world so that we can very wisely, very gently, but very clearly expose the illogic for what it is. It's a trap and a lie. And we can do that. And in the process, never move your pivot foot. The moment that gospel goals and biblical means cease to be the solution to the problems and the answers to the questions, we have lost our power. We have lost the source that empowers everything that we do. So be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Second, be strong and let all that you do be done in love. Now, uh, oftentimes I think half of us are thinking, yes, I hope these guys hear that they need to be strong, right? We see guys in our lives, uh, pastors around us that we wish were stronger on some of the more important issues and maybe we feel like they kind of soft pedal some of these things. And so half of us go, yeah, these guys need to hear that they gotta be strong. And then half of us are thinking, yes, these guys need to hear that everything they do needs to be done in love. Because there's a bunch of guys out there on Twitter and other platforms being jerks. 
And we need to hear that every single thing we do has to be done in love. Now, the combination of these two things doesn't create a third way. One is about action, be strong. And the other is about motivation, that everything we do be done in love. And Paul's call is clear, be strong. The future of Christian leadership is no place for weakness. It will require tough calls, last stands, painful losses, and conviction above all else. The future of Christian leadership will require you to publicly take sides. There will be no hedging, no place for ambiguity. You'll have to preach unpopular ideas and do so without equivocation. When we were in Seattle, we uh, were renting a church, that church that was inside of the autonomous zone. We're renting a church from a very liberal Lutheran congregation. And when I first met with the pastor, she, the first question she asked me was, uh, what's your position on homosexuality? And I told her really clear. I said, we are, we're not affirming. Uh, those folks are welcome to be a part of our community, love them and welcome them. Uh, but we, we are not affirming. She goes, okay, I, I just, I know my board will ask, but they let us rent, which is a small miracle. About six months later, she was fired from her job. And within days of being fired, I was uh, uh, reached out to by one of their elders who was a gay man who asked to meet with me at a local uh, hipster lemonade shop, which is a thing in Seattle. And so we uh, met in this uh, very public area and he was visibly upset from the get-go and uh, started telling me basically and in, in kind of obliquely that this was not going to work for us long term. And he said, oh, we went on to the Acts 29 website and we heard some sermons and, and we just do not agree with your position. And this was the line and it's a bit shocking, but this gay elder of a Lutheran church looked me in the eyes across our lemonades and said, I just don't understand where the F word does that leave trans people? And I thought, well, that's a first. That's never happened to me before. And in that moment, I had to toe the line. I had to answer him honestly, as graciously as possible. And he wasn't there to have a you know, robust dialogue by any means. But that is going to become more and more and more the norm for us. That our position would elicit that kind of anger and response. We will have to be clear about what we believe is right and what we believe is wrong, even when those people are looking at us with tears in their eyes. We will lose friends, we will lose givers. We will lose buildings. It will take great strength. There will be moments where we have to draw lines in the sand and call things as they are. And it must be exclusively motivated by love. At the very same time. It seems like every week I see some pastor on the internet making the argument for public mockery. And it usually goes something like, well, Jesus called the Pharisees vipers and he was whipping fools in the temple courts so I can mock people on the internet. Maybe. Only you and Jesus really know if your actions are motivated by love. But, but I'm calling him a moron out of love. 
All right. In that moment, do you feel a deep love for that person and a longing for them to know Christ more fully? And is it out of that deeply felt emotion that that you are driven to call him a moron? But isn't it more loving to be clear, even if it is sarcastic and biting? Maybe. You tell me. Would you talk to someone that you definitely love? like your wife or your kids, the way you talk to them? You who are without malice, arrogance, revenge, hypocrisy in your heart, whip the first fool. Because here's what I know about Jesus. He was prepared to die for the vipers. He was on his way to the cross for the liars. He incarnated out of deep love, left the safety and eternal adoration of of heaven in order to be with the people who would murder him. I have no doubt about his motives. Now, those of you who are tempted to equivocate and sugarcoat in the name of gentleness and kindness and winsomeness, are you sure that your motives are not driven by cowardice and a desire to be liked? Only you and Jesus know that answer. So the tension here, be strong and let all that you do be done in love. Now, these two pairs are all oriented around a central command to act like men. They're held in tension with one another, and I think that it's only actually in that tension that we can act like men and women. When we lose the tension and we are strong without love or we are watchful without the gospel, that we cannot act like men and women. And just to be clear here, when he says act like men, he's not saying act like men, not women. He's saying act like men, not boys. Act like women, not girls. Grow up. When I joined Acts 29 in 2004, I was 25 when I planted my first church. We were a bunch of boys led by some older boys, most of whom are not here anymore. We were confident in our ability to plant churches, to change our city, to start a movement, to change the world. We knew the way, we had the strategy, we had the plan. It was mostly us preaching for 90 minutes. That was the main plan. We were children. And what did children say when you offered to help them? I have five kids and my youngest is five. And anytime I ask, he's he's the baby actually, so he lets us do anything for him. But all the other ones, when you ask them to help, if you can help them, what do they say? I can do it. I can do it. Years ago, I was, uh, it's a longer story, but I was spending a couple weeks in Nashville with uh, a group of guys, and uh, it was kind of a recovery program of a sort, uh, but one of the pieces of it was a ropes course. And uh, there were six of us guys in this group, and we were, the ropes course was designed to get from one tree to the next. It was low ropes. The stakes were very low. We fell off often like that. And, uh, and yet, the, the, the goal was to get your entire team 
to the end of the course. And so it was like, great. This has been two weeks of like, you know, therapy and counseling. So I'm like, awesome. Let's do some stuff here. Right. And so I start strategizing and I got one other guy who I feel like is with me. The rest of them were like, I don't care, but I feel like I had another kind of crazy person with me. And so we were able to navigate the whole ropes course and we got to the end and I will never forget the counselor looking at me and going, I have never seen anyone lead their team through the ropes course successfully. And I have never seen anyone miss the point of the ropes course so completely. The point of the ropes course was to learn about your limits so that you would depend on the people around you and on God. It was designed to be impossible. The only way we survived and, and made it to the end was because I convinced one of the smaller wiry guys to literally climb a tree and totally blow up the whole point of this thing and risk his life, not mine, but he did and we won. And that's the main point, but there was the secondary point that I'm a moron. Like, I just wanted to beat the course. I wanted to be awesome. I wanted to say, I can do it like a child. The Greek word here in this section that, that encourages us to act like men is andrizome, andrizome, according to Lagos. And it's the same word that the Septuagint uses to translate Moses' words to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. When Paul says, act like men, act like women, not boys and girls, he is saying, be strong and courageous. These are our words for this coming season. But the most important word in Deuteronomy 31.6 is the word for, F-O-R. Because be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them. If that were the end of the sentence, then I would feel pretty good and pretty strong and try to do the whole thing in my own power and my own will like I did on the ropes course. Without that word for, it's all on us. But thank God the word for is in there. The only reason that we can be told to act like men and act like women, to be strong and courageous is because the Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The only source of our strength and the only reason we can be courageous is because the Lord God goes with us. We cannot win this battle. We will win this war. We will only win this war. If God is with us and we are actively leaning on him, depending on him, it is the way of dependence that is the way of manhood and maturity. Men and women are dependent on God to be our strength. Boys and girls are self-sufficient and dead. Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. Act like men.